Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is produced in association with Jazz Times. Singer-songwriter, poet, Rachel Sage is inspired by multiple musical influences, everything from Broadway and pop to folk and jazz. She has a drama degree from Stanford and went on to a year with the Actors Studio. The New York Times describes her performances as alternately channeling her inner Fanny Bryce and a Jewish Nora Jones. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Today we're revisiting my 2021 conversation with Rachel about her project Poetica, a spoken word and music collaboration with some of her favorite musicians made during the pandemic through an embrace of new technologies and a desire to create something meaningful despite forced isolation. In Rachel's words, she produced this project with a laptop, microphone, interface, headphones, and ironing board with speakers on it surrounded by various instruments. I asked Rachel if she already had the skills for such an undertaking or if she learned as she went. Well, it was a bit of a trial by fire, to be honest. I considered myself to be very technically inclined as a teenager, back when everyone was recording, you know, with ADATs and and it was a whole other technology. But I really had never, you know, womaned the, the Pro Tools by myself. So, you know, there's nothing like a little bit of... Uh, extra time to encourage you to finally <laughs> roll up your sleeves and, and learn how to engineer properly. So mm. yeah, silver lining. I've talked to so many people about what they did during this time. And I can tell you that over and over, the people who did the best psychologically were the ones who dove in like you did and said, I'm going to learn something new, not just record something, but a lot of people have learned new skills during this time. That's true. And yeah. thrived with that. And I'm curious for you, do you feel that from now on going forward that you will record differently or think differently about how you record? Talk about that. That's a great question and very timely, actually, because I'm about to begin a new project that will, of course, probably take many months. But I'm just thinking about all those things now. And, you know, I wouldn't say I'm going to throw the baby out with the bathwater as far as using, you know, wonderful engineers and experts who help take things to another, a different level than I would in isolation. Um, You know, I really love just being able to focus on the production and the arrangement and the performance. That's already a lot. That's a triptych of things to focus on. Um, You know, so I think it'll be a combination. I think I I went down a path that allowed me to get really creative and use the technology almost like another instrument. So I wouldn't want to remove that option. But I think for recording basic tracks, I would use an engineer. Mm. And then maybe they would break out stems for me. And then in my, you know, in the uh, recesses of my own creativity, when nobody's around and the lights are out, I can try all my crazy percussion ideas and beatboxing and keyboard parts and, you know, off the clock. When a friend whose heart 
have a degree in drama. You've already pursued in your beautiful art behind you that I can see here. So do you think the fact that you already pursued so many different artistic directions made you more open to jumping into something like this? I'm always encouraging Hmm. people to do these things, even if they're not a professional. (laughs) Sure. Because I'm sure you've had it happen with you. People constantly say, oh, I wish I were creative. And I think oh, everyone I think, is creative. Uh, we are very like-minded. I yeah. completely agree. I think everyone's creative. I think everyone can sing. And even everyone can write music in, in with the right parameters if they want to. So, no, we're, we're right on the same page there. As far as whether my other, you know, pursuits in the arts factored into me being open to learning new skills, I, I like to think so. But, you know... With the, with my tongue in my cheek, I will say that I have always thought of myself as very untechnical and, you know, not very 
good with gear. So I had to push through some fear and some insecurity and just that uncomfortable feeling of not already being pretty good at something. You know, I, mm. I like many other people in the arts, sometimes we like to strictly go down the paths that have the least resistance and that feel the most liberated. But, you know, again, limitations. It, it worked for the Beatles, right? You know, you only have those four <laughs> tracks. I only had myself up in a little attic in uh, Hudson Valley, nobody to help me. And I did know one thing for certain. If I wasn't able to create something and to to stay in that expressive space, even in these times of great strife, I knew that I would go nuts. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, it, it really wasn't a, a choice. It was like, I need to do this just like I would need to take medicine, just like I need to walk for my sanity and I need to stay in touch with loved ones. You know, it was a human expressive need to be part of the collective conversation mm. that, that pushed me to learn how to engineer. You know, that, that was almost the, the afterthought. The first mm. part was, this is what I need to do. How am I going to go about it? I had somebody ask me just recently, uh, maybe a week ago, because I was talking about something new that I had done. Mm -hmm. And she looked off, and she was in her 20s, so this was interesting, too, that it was a perspective. She said, that's great. When's the last time? And she was putting this out to all of us who were standing around. When's the last time that you said you've done something for the first time? So true. Isn't yeah. that beautiful? Because yeah. I was just talking about some crazy thing that I had done. I said I'd never do anything like that. And I just did it. And I got Good some encouragement. Yeah, but <laughs> I'm I love you. That, but I love that she said, when is mm -hmm. the last time that you said I did something for the first time? And I took it as that I'm older than she, so mm -hmm. I've been around. I've done a lot of things for the first time. So I was sort of thinking of that. And the person with me who's older than I am said, no, it was just that you should be doing things for the first time all the time. That's so many how he great artists it. always come back to that, don't they? That I think David Bowie was one who often articulated something along those lines that mm. you should feel like you're in the deep end. And then that's exactly when you know you're in the right place art artistically, when you're a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit afraid, nervous, you know, to just keep pushing in that direction rather than the one that you're used to, that everyone expects from you. So, you know, especially as someone who was in theater and dance, those are no-brainer creeds for me. You know, as a dancer, you're pretty much always uncomfortable, but you're supposed to make it look beautiful and, you know, help tell stories and transport and uplift people, in a sense, through something that's quite painful. So mm. not that I advocate that anymore. I, I left that world, but I can appreciate the commitment and that, you know, that type of approach to art making. Mm, mm. I would think that the dance background is very useful for you at all times just because of the discipline of knowing that kind of practice That's and true. keep doing it all the time. And 
that. Although it hasn't helped me stick to a yoga practice. I'm still struggling with that, but. <laughs> me too. I love yoga. I'm not good. I do a bit on my own, but I'm really yeah. better in a class. Well, Somehow we can nudge each person- other. Yeah. <laughs> now that we know each other. Exactly. Have you done we your can yoga do- today? Exactly. That's what, that's what it's got to be. We'll talk about this wonderful yes. project. It's very cinematic and dreamy for me. I was really swept into it. And before we started, I told you that the track about your father especially touched me because they're all, oh, just beautiful. And the mood of it and the music, of course, but the sentiment of it. And I was thinking, well, that's what everybody would want from a parent, that kind of support, non-judgment, Um, I just loved it. Talk about this. It was really special. You know, I actually was reluctant to include that piece in this Poetica collection because it is a bit different. It has slightly more of a harmonic structure to it that, you know, it's simpler, I suppose. There's a handful of chords that I looped on the guitar and then I built everything around it. Um, But it was the other collaborators on the project, including Dave Agar, who really encouraged me to include it because it is different. So, you know, I wanted it to have a little bit more of an Americana kind of folk quality to it, almost like, you know, some of the material from uh, Glenn Hansard and or maybe even Bruce Springsteen's sort of unplugged material. And, you know, then that's why I wasn't sure if it fit. But by the time I got all the other players on it, I think it took it somewhere else. And, Mm. you know, it's just very meaningful for me, especially because, unfortunately, my father has been having some health issues during this time. And while he's doing much better now, but while I was recording the piece, I suppose it was a way of, you know, putting a prayer on this collection and just reminding myself how incredibly fortunate I am to have that support from my parent and uh, Mm. both of my parents, but this poem in particular about my father. My father may not have been around a lot, but somehow he still managed to become my best friend, proving early on that adage of quality over quantity. People would ask me, isn't that hard with him away so much? And I think to myself, not really. When he is there, He never raises his voice. He never has an unkind word for me or about anyone else. I have never heard my father give an insult or let out an ugly toad in words of any kind. I still don't know how this can be possible, but it is the truth and defined the word respect for me as I grew. Miraculously, my dad became Santa Claus. He showed up monthly, or even every other month, with gifts, with laughter, with unconditional love, and a sense of wonder and perpetually youthful joy that rivaled any friend my own age I ever made. He wrote limericks. He challenged us with games. When he was there, he was more there than, I sensed, many of my friends' fathers, even when they had family dinners every night or did homework together. My father taught me the virtues of being independent as long as you could occupy your time with something you truly, unequivocally enjoy. 
He didn't only tell me this by saying it to me. In fact, he rarely used words to tell me much. I learned by observing his behavior and actions foremost. He embraced his life's work with zealousness, a straight line between a positive disposition, natural talent, and a practical nature. My father became my hero because he rarely seemed to succumb to negativity, disparagement, or any number of adult qualities abounding in teachers at school, counselors at camp, and among friends' parents when I'd visit them to play. I rarely heard my father arguing with anyone versus debating. I can't think of a single moment where he needed to be right purely for ego's sake, rather than to be genuinely searching for insight. Integrity has seemed to be at the heart of my father's lessons to his children. And while everyone has a different idea of what that might comprise, I've rarely disagreed with him about it, rather than been inspired to strive. When I think of his laughing eyes, his warm, affectionate embrace, his ability to imbibe any activity with a shameless sense of fun, I also think of a level of self-confidence I'm not sure I will ever have. What makes us most different is his seeming invulnerability to adversity versus my own emotional volatility. My father's presence in my life continually poses the question, how can one be an artist, be creative, and tell the truth? I'm grateful for the luxury of determining this answer for myself without judgment, with a father's nachas. My guest, Rachel Sage, on A Father's Nachas from her CD, Poetica. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. So nachas is the Yiddish word for a kind of a loving pride that one feels for someone close to them, like a parent for a child or, you know, a sibling for another sibling, a grandparent, um, you know, it's just that sense of sort of overflowing with pride, not necessarily for, you know, your loved one's accomplishments, although that's sometimes the context, but maybe also just for the type of person who they are, that they're a mensch, that they have, you know, inherited some positive values, hopefully. So that that connectedness from generation to generation, you mm. would feel nachis for someone in your family you know, living living their life in a positive way. I think it's tricky, at least it is to me, with the spoken word, because it can either be profound mm-hmm. and very moving, as I find your project, or it can seem very self-conscious and very pretentious. <laughs> and it's it's a real fine line. You're right, you're right. It is a fine line between, you know, sort of being a self-parody Saturday Night Live skit with spoken word or having it hopefully, you know, land in an authentic and unique way. And, mm. you know, I, I really didn't think about any of that, of course, while I was doing this. The the first moment that I started recording any of this poetry was really more geared toward doing an audio book of what I thought would be an eventual poetry book. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, so that's how first. this started out. Yes, the vi- the very beginning. I mean, that didn't last very long. Before I knew it, I was often running and layering, you know, s- sung parts and, and various instrumentation. But at the very outset, it was really about me, you know, trying to commit some of these poems in a more interesting way, um, you know, as an, as an audio book. Mm. And then I started layering because I thought, well, no one's done that. No one's used several voices and panning and made it more of a stereo image, you know, kind of musical effect with, with an audio book. And that's, that comes very naturally to me. So I got all involved in that and, you know, editing the vocals and, and doubling and tripling things. And then, you know, it just, it happened very, very quickly that I knew I wanted to musicalize it. Um, mm, and then mm. that's when Dave and I connected and he's already very familiar with my poetry just as a friend and um, sometime mentor. So he dove right in and he was like, send me a hundred, 200 of your favorite poems and I'll look through them all and pick my favorites and then we'll just start, you know, working on this remotely. He was so excited because of course he was isolated as well. We were, you know, we had just been separated after touring together for several weeks. So we were already very connected creatively. you write and how you put these things together because mm-hmm. you said this was the first time that you had done a collaboration in that way normally you'd be writing the music yes. and be singing mm-hmm. and now you have written the poems and I read that you said that you enjoyed not having the structure of a tune oh, yes. in writing some of these which I know uh, as a lyricist myself it's very different when you've got 
the music that the puzzle pieces you're fitting in, mm -hmm. and now you were completely free. But talk about the music and how you sure. collaborated on that, because I was really interested in that. Oh, thank you. Well, I'll, I guess I'll just go back to the first few pieces that I worked on with Dave. And how it really worked was just, you know, I would lay down my vocals. I would usually do one, two, or three full performances speaking the poem into my fancy new mic that I bought from uh, B&H at the beginning of the pandemic <laughs> upon the advice of another engineer. And, um, you know, I was really, at that point, I was experimenting more with the sound. I tried a regular pure sound and then I tried that that bullet mic that, you know, kind of sounds like this where you put your hand in front of your face and uh, gives it sort of a 1960s feel. And so I was layering my voice in that way. And then the first piece, Unconditional, I actually started layering a sung melody line. And then, you know, I, I layered that and I harmonized on it. And then I sent it to Dave and I said, I would love for you to build upon this and kind of make it into an orchestral, you know, slash Bollywood vibe. And then while he was working on that, I added all of the percussion. And the funny thing was that, you know, I didn't even have to buy or order anything. You know, I used... Um, body percussion. I was slapping my chest and my knees and miking things up in the, in the little house I was renting. And then I had, you know, jingle bells from when I was touring that I always play with. I used hand claps. So it was very, it was kind of Bobby McFerrin-ish. And, and I mentioned him also because I realized pretty quickly in this process that as a kid, he was a huge influence on me. And I just never really put that influence into play. But I remember going to SUNY Purchase um, on a field trip in high school and seeing him build something in real time, you know, using all of his creativity. And it just blew my mind and it really stuck. Thank you. 
Bobby McFerrin on the title track from his CD, Bang Zoom. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Our show is made possible in part with support from Jazz Times, providing entertaining and provocative coverage of the jazz scene since 1970. On the web at jazztimes.com. Although we broadcast on NPR stations, we're an independent production not funded by NPR. We're funded primarily by your donations. So please visit jazzinspired.com to chip in. No gift is too small. 2023 marks our 23rd year on air. Please write a review on Apple Podcasts, which is the best way for us to spread the word about the show. For a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can listen to Jazz Inspired on all the usual podcast platforms and email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Stride Queen. Visit judycarmichael.com for my upcoming concert schedule. My guest, singer-songwriter Rachel Sage, brought me a favorite Nina Simone recording. I first heard Nina Simone when I was in college. Regrettably, I was not raised with her music in my home. Bad parents, but, um, <laughs> you know, it was just, she blew my mind. I mean, from the first note I heard her sing, and then the range of all of her work through through her career, um, the social consciousness in her music, her courage, being on the forefront of racial injustice, you know, all everything about her as a person, which is very important for me. I'm, I'm one of those people who tends to really cue into artists who, you know, strike me and inspire me as a whole human being. Mm, mm. So, and because, and that's, I want yeah. to point that out to our listeners too. You and I know this, but there's a lot of people who play beautifully and they're not beautiful people. That's true. I mean, through, <laughs> through history, there have been some people that people have even said, yeah. how did that guy play like that when he, you know, just pushed his wife out the window oh, or something, goodness. you know? So I know what you're saying because mm-hmm. it does make it, uh, it makes it more powerful. Yes. Continue. I interrupted it's more, you, it's but more I romantic to embrace, you know, the body of someone's work when you also deeply admire them as a mm. person. Mm. Um, but yes, my roommate in college, Erin, she played me her greatest hits, and this one particular recording has always moved me so much. And you know, 
I love that she recorded and composed in so many genres. And her message was always one of resilience and empowerment. And But at the same time, she wasn't afraid to show her vulnerability as a woman, as a person, and to admit when she felt pain and to, you know, protest when when she wasn't treated fairly. So basically, I think this is a blues song. And as I'm often reminded when I make these best of lists, blues is really among my very favorite mm. style of music. Ain't no use, baby. I'm leaving the scene. Ain't no use, baby. You're too doggone me. Yes, I'm tired of paying dues. Having the blues. Getting bad news. Ain't no use, baby. I'm curious, I did a tiny bit of acting and went off in the musical direction for my own reasons. I grew up in California, Mm -hmm. so I had a different view of all of this. But I'm curious for you, because your degree is in drama, so you were thick in it and decided to go in a different direction. So I'm curious why you made that choice and... I think the choice made me. Oh, tell me. You know, and it's still making me because I never say never. And I've dipped in and out of acting through the years in various uh, situations. Um, After college, I actually, 
um, was doing both of them equally. I was studying at the Shakespeare Lab at the New York Public Theater with some wonderful teachers there. And Shakespeare was really my passion at the time. I had always performed Shakespeare in high school and college. And uh, I loved the language. I loved the characters. I, and I also enjoyed writing music for Shakespeare production. Mm. So I became that gal at Stanford University where, who people would call not only to be in the plays, but to compose, you know, we called it incidental music at the mm. time. But I guess now it's more just like film score, but for the, the plays. And my model was always the New York Public Theater and all of those um, guest composers they would have, like Philip Glass, you know, or Frank London, or, you know, people who would write music that could stand on its own, but also very much served the plot and these segues. Um, so that was kind of what I fancied myself doing for a while. And I thought, well, how do I get into that professionally? You know, what's the track for that? I don't even write out music. I'm not trained in that way, but I create all of this, you know, with MIDI instruments and so forth. So, you know, between that and wanting to be an actor, you know, I was, my head was spinning. It's New York City. How do you begin? How do you get your foot in the door? And then on a whim, I applied to that Shakespeare lab at the New York Public Theater. Couldn't believe I got in. And it was a dream come true. But right as it was finishing, I was invited to go on tour with Ani DeFranco. And so that door opened and um, I really didn't look back. You know, after that, I, you know, continued on with my label, Empress Records, and I've just been making music and releasing it and touring ever since. But I Mm. I do act in my dreams and you never know. (laughs) Well, and it's brought something to your music, as you say, in terms of storytelling, I'm sure, and stage presence and all of that. So it's all useful, don't you think? I do, yes. Do you have anything that is a spoken word like this that inspired you at all? What a great question. You know, I love spoken word artists, and I have through the years attended, you know, myriad readings at places like New York and Poets Cafe. And one woman in particular who just comes immediately to mind is Stacey Ann Chen. I just think she is a genius. I think she's one of the bravest theater artists ever. I saw her one-woman show um, at a space quite near me on Bleecker Street, and it was all about her journey, um, you know, as a queer Jamaican woman, from you know, from her homeland to America and her whole experience also raising a daughter. And it was just extraordinary. And she, you know, that that particular piece was more of a one-woman show, I suppose, but her spoken word has always blown me away. It's just Mm. so powerful and also very socially conscious. So talk about Ornette Coleman. You brought me an Ornette Coleman track. I did. Well, you know, back in my 20s, which was only a year or two ago, you know, um, (laughs) uh, a young woman named Alison Cornell, who was a phenomenal, she is a phenomenal violinist, Juilliard trained, et cetera. Um, She brought me to a jazz club called Deanna's in the East Village. And there was a jazz band and they were playing and she sat in with them. And afterwards I said, well, what was that extraordinary piece? And 
She said, oh, it's Ornette Coleman. And I, I honestly, I hadn't even heard, I didn't know this name. I was so in my own, you know, pop, folk, rock, and acting worlds. I had no, um, you know, education in that regard. So I dove in and I just, I've loved Ornette Coleman's music for many, many years. But this particular piece, Sadness, I love it because it's just pure mood to me. It's pure like cinematic genius and it, every note is essential and it transports me and takes me kind of out of the mundane into a completely otherworldly place, which is what I think the best art should do, you mm. know. Um, so it's very impressionistic to me and almost like a musical painting and when you come out of the other side, you know, having listened with your full attention, I think you're going to be a little bit altered. So I mm. thought it was a good juxtaposition to some of the other pieces I uh, mentioned to you as that were my favorites because it's so very different. Ornette Coleman, a favorite of my guest, singer-songwriter Rachel Sage. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I love you describing Ornette Coleman 
and also the greatest art that you're a little bit altered afterwards. And I think that's true if you release to it, if you don't think too hard sometimes mm. about some of these things. It's nice you can listen to it the first time. I try to do it and absorb it. And it, and if I'm moved, if, if it grabs me and makes me not think, mm -hmm. then that's sort of how I think of great art. And then maybe I can come back and think about other parts of it or something like that. I love that. Yeah. And Don't I, we all think too much? <laughs> we do. We do. I know that if I'm thinking about something um, if at a concert, it's mm -hmm. not good. I want to be, and it's harder for us because we're musicians. So yes. we will be thinking, oh, that stopped swinging. Well, they really need a different drummer. You know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you'll be thinking, why did they choose that drummer? That's oh, true. yeah, you know, and you'll think that. But I felt that listening to your project because it really did sweep me away. And then I'd start, it was all very hypnotic in the best oh, way. And one of the tracks I really liked was Pulpit talk about that. Oh, sure. Well, Pulpit was actually a compositional collaboration with my incredible violinist, Kelly Halloran, with whom I've been playing for quite a number of years. And we've toured the world together, um, playing my, my other music. Um, and I came to her a little bit later in the course of this project, after I'd already made several pieces with Dave Eggar and a number of other musicians. And she was sort of, you know, insecure about it a little bit because of the home recording aspect. She was like, I don't know if my mic is good enough. I don't know this. I don't know that. Like, what are you, what exactly do you want? You know? And the more I played her other pieces from the larger project, the more excited and ambitious she got. Mm. And, you know, so when I got some of her elements back from this piece, I was just blown away. You know, she had done some keyboard programming that eventually I actually replaced with other organic instruments because that's where my production sensibility tends to go. But the ideas that she composed and how how much it really it was sort of an onomatopoeia of the poem to me, whereas some of the other pieces on the album are more meditative and sort of a bed for the poetry. I really felt like my collaboration with her became you know, um, it's just, it's very, the music parallels the language and um, it really sounds like what I'm talking about. It is difficult to know sometimes from the pulpit of entertainment how much to let in. consume continents, consume wars regions. consume regions, friends consumed with mothers and fathers lost. What can we do? What can we do? When we are gathered, this few of us on a Sabbath, at the edge of a city taught, fraught with its own tragedy, with its own tragedy. Reviewing my potential set list tonight, this darkness, bravery's on What I mourn privately, no holes barred, rivers would flow. Release show is an oxymoron. Releasing cannot be done for show. Releasing comes from letting go. 
sometimes, as Joy confided tonight, playing music is so hard. But not playing is not an option. So I will rest my eyes, grateful for the opportunity to gather generous listeners to the palm of my heart. Hopefully. Hopefully. Hope comes through, hope comes even when life cannot imitate art. Pulpit was a poem that I wrote in January of 2020. Uh, So that's, you know, just before all of this happened. And it was the last gig in New York City that I played um, at City Vineyard with a wonderful singer-songwriter named Joy Askew. And I remember that right before that gig, there had been another one of these many horrific mass shootings. And we'd all been reading about it in the news, and that was in our minds and in our bodies, and we were very heavy from this. And you show up to a gig, and as you know, you know, you try to shed all of that. You try to pretend you didn't just watch the news, and you're loading in, and you're greeting people, but it was in all of us. And so that particular piece, it felt like it gained a new meaning during the COVID, you know, situation, because I could have just written it at any moment, you know, during that time, Mm. just kind of how do we continue to play? How do we continue to do what we do, what we love to do when it is so hard, which is a lyric, you know, one of the uh, lines in the piece. Mm. And I, I really feel like the music is kind of pushing through that to a joyful place by the end. How songs are born. I love the line, depending on your interpretation of time. That's just wonderful. Just coming at this different ways. Talk about this piece. You know, How Songs Are Born was was a really quite a practical poem that I wrote because there have been many people, not many, but a handful of uh, close folks in my life who've asked me recurrently, you know, how do you write songs? Where does this inspiration come from? And I really wanted to somehow capture that in a poem versus explaining it and then just have it out there in the ether and always be able to point to it. <laughs> so, you know, the good thing about... Because uh, we're, we're always explaining. We're always explaining. I love it. No, and I then have when a, you're explaining, yeah. you're like, is this really even true? Like... Is, is it more magical than what I'm explaining? Mm, mm. You know, it's ephemeral. It's mysterious. Sometimes you meet an equally strange kindred spirit. Someone you may have known. Someone you may have known. In another life. Long ago. Or maybe only seconds prior. Depending on your interpretation of time. The meeting itself is a kind of misguided magic. What are the chances? What are the chances of changing mundane's mind? Especially on a weekend when life symbolisms in a stupor, searching for something graspable, concrete. Still, in the wake of cynicism's eye. You may be swept up into spiral staircase-like questions 
the holiest, most irrational kind. And only then, ill-fated, is it time since you asked to sit down, shattered by the looming sound of no, and imagine what yes would taste, look, feel like, for the sake of simple sanity, yes, this echo of what, ping-ponging if, is how songs are born. My guest, Rachel Sage, from her CD, Poetica. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. So talk about Allison Miller. Yes. Well, I first became acquainted with Allison Miller purely as a drummer. Um, I heard her playing with Ani DeFranco, with whom I had toured. And then I kept, you know, hearing her um, with my bassist at the time. They had a group, Todd Sikafus. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, a wonderful composer and bassist. And I would go hear them play together in Brooklyn at places like Barbez, you know, it was a little bit out of my typical pop rock scene. And it just, this music was so adventurous and colorful and free. And I just immediately fell in love with her as an artist. And again, it's it's the kind of music that makes me want to sit down at the piano and just try anything. <laughs> Thank you. 
Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time. I love looking at your artwork. Oh. We can't. This is radio, so people can't see that you thank have this. Thank you so much for having effect. me. I'll have oh, to make you some artwork. <laughs> oh, please do, please do. I'm such a fan, and all of your beautiful. The covers, your whole style. I've as I was researching you, it was also a visual feast as oh, well as an you. oral feast. So well, your really listeners lovely. can't hear that, can't see that we're both wearing red glasses. But I know. I saw that and black spirits. tops. Yeah, are we really? We have it. It's like we're the we've got it together. So thank you very much, and thank you for doing the show. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You've been listening to my conversation with Rachel Sage. I hope you'll join me next time when I talk with another creative person about how jazz inspires their life and work. For more information on Rachel Sage, visit PoeticaProgram.com or RachelSage.com. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Curtis Heidoff. You can download podcasts of Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired from all the usual podcast platforms or listen at jazzinspired.com. Although we broadcast on NPR stations, we're an independent production not funded by NPR. We're funded primarily by your donations. So please visit jazzinspired.com to chip in. And please write a review on Apple Podcasts, which is the best way for us to spread the word. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is also sponsored in part with generous support from our listeners and Page at 63 Main in Sag Harbor, New York. Visit page63main.com. Our opening music was airmail special, and the mid-break music is a smooth one from my CD, High on Fats and Other Stuff. The closing music is Old Fashioned Love from my CD trio. I'm on piano with Mike Hashem on sax and Chris Mori on guitar. For upcoming jazz-inspired shows and to see my upcoming concert schedule, visit jazzinspired.com or judycarmichael.com.